Hello everyone, welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic and writer. I am joined, as always, by my great friend and social scientist, Leon. Hello everyone. Hello Leon. And today, today we're going to, about, we're going to talk about an extremely famous writer, but not his fantasy. It's George R. Martins, and we're going to talk with a great Brazilian friend and fellow scholar who's currently dedicated to science fiction and narratology. He is currently working on George R. Martin's science fiction, and he's also the first Brazilian scholar we have on the show, uh, which hey. is something I'm particularly happy with and uh, <laughs> a point of pride for, for Arthur on his diligence and actually giving me something. It's like, so what are we going to talk about? It's like this. Yes, thank you. Welcome, Arthur. Lovely to have you here. Hi guys, uh, Frank and Leon, thanks for inviting me. I just want to say that when you asked me what we could talk about, I just went for an idea that I've had for like more than a year. And I really wanted to talk about this and I want to write about this, but I didn't have the time yet. So I think this is going to be a really great opportunity for us to chat. And so that we can like, I, I can even develop better what I am thinking about these stories. So it's useful, it's fun, and I'm really honored to be the first uh, Brazilian guest in your podcast. <laughs> Yay. Uh, but of course, it's, it's the kind of thing, and this creates a reference material for you to eventually carry on writing about this. And Yes, exactly. Or to develop that. So happy to, to help you with that and be, be this space. Like More often than not, when I invite people, it's like, oh, I've been wanting to talk about this, I've been wanting to read about this. And it ends up like being the space for people to talk about the things they like or the things they've been wanting to talk about. So we're happy that this can be a space for you as well. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, the story we're going to talk about is called And Seven Times Never Kill Man from 1975. And it's a part of the Thousand Worlds universe. Is that right, Arthur? Yes. Well, it really <laughs> depends on which theory uh, you are assigning to if there is such thing as a thousand words. Because this is something that I have been working on for some time now. The thousand words is what I call an expanded story word. It, it comes from the, the Star Wars fan concept of an expanded universe. You know, all these stories that they are not necessarily sequential, uh, but they are all part of a larger tapestry you will. And the thousand words is just like that. I mean, you don't have to read them all. You don't have to read them in order. And there's, it's worse in a way because we don't even know which stories are thousand words. Yeah. Right. Because there's no list. There's no, Martin never said, here are my thousand words texts. Oh. The editors never said that. We don't have a thousand words collection. And that got me thinking really. What are the narrative mechanisms that create this thing we call, or I am calling, an expanded story world? So it took me a while. Uh, I published a paper together with my uh, advisor, Professor Elaine Indruziak, in which we, we argue that an expanded story world is a tool that the reader uses to... Uh, to solve coincidences he finds between two texts. So sometimes we have an author promoting this idea, and then we have these two 
in our uh, storage, so to speak. And then when we see this coincidence, sometimes we, we, we think, well, these two stories, they might be in the same universe. So in the end, the one who really builds uh, an expanded story world is the reader, mm. even though the outside world influences on it and then uh, everyone has a say about this. But uh, I showed in this paper together with uh, Professor Eleni many inconsistencies of many expanded story words from Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and I'm not even mentioning the comics because they are way more inconsistent <laughs> because they have been published and uh, they, they have been in, uh, in print for, I don't know, 80 years. So, and, and, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is just 15. So, uh, but I, I mentioned some examples from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh, from uh, Le Guin's Hainish Psycho and Isaac Asimov and, and all these sources, they all tell us that there are no rules when it comes to defining an expanded story word. So I, I, I talked a lot about this, uh, but to answer <laughs> your question, basically everyone considers and seven times never kill men to be a part of the thousand words. Yeah. That's the impression that I got as well by like uh, reading on like the fans perception of it. And um, yeah, I think the strongest arguments once again, it's not really not a real argument, but the way I have always perceived it, let me just say that very uh, neutrally. I, uh, I think that a lot of the themes and the messaging that shows up in seven times never kill man is very reoccurrent in other Martin's works. Sure. And I think once again, it's just so like compliments, because I think this is really good pick for like, because it's very emblematic of Martin. I think seven times never kill man, even though it's a short story, I think in my humble opinion, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, by the way, but I think based on what I've read, I think it's very emblematic of, uh, I agree. touch upon a lot of touching points that we can find in his work. No, I, I taught a course on George R. R. Martin's uh, text a while back too. And this is one of the stories that I chose for an opening because it really, as you just said, it, it's uh, emblematic of Martin's um, general themes in the, mainly during the seventies, but this goes, it, it works for a song of ice and fire and his more recent stuff too. I think. Yeah, I uh, I was just talking to Frank that it reminded me a lot of this conflict within the song of ice and fire world. The when the Andals invade uh, Westeros and fight the uh, children of the forest, I thought it was like very reminiscent of that. The religious fundamentalism on display and like, well, how Martin handles pacifism versus religious fundamentalism. I think that's you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very clear messaging, I would say. Uh, once again, very short story, not a lot of wrinkle room in that regard. So, you know. No, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think this, this is a recurring theme. And um, if you want to, to put this in a bigger picture in the, in the, the thousand words, uh, we have many references to other works, yeah. such as we, we have here a reference to a short story by Martin called This Tower of Fascists, for instance. Uh, it takes place in a planet called Old Poseidon. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's, it takes place in Jameson's world, which is a satellite planet of Old Poseidon. Uh, and we know that when we read um, This Tower of Fascists. But in And Seven Times Never Kill Man, we, we have mentions for uh, of um, Old Poseidon. We have mentions of Prometheus, another planet that is recurrent 
I think Prometheus never appears in A Thousand Words, but many other uh, works mention it. So it, it is a story that, one, has recurring themes with all of Martin's works, right? Uh, when it comes to, to colonialism in a, in a wider sense, uh, but religion, his approach to religion, to pacifism, uh, it's very, very recurrent, recurrent, really. And we also have this references, direct references when it comes to, to locations or historic figures or chronology that sort of makes it easy to, to place this story in this um, expanded story world, right? I, once again, I recognize the pilch out of Echelon. Like, that's a thing that shows up, like, a lot, I believe. So, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. We have a problem. Well, we actually have two problems here. Uh, okay. Because that this is one of the things that made me postulate that the one who creates an expanded story world is the reader. Because I just told you that this story has references to other thousand-word stories, right? Like the Star of Fascists, because some planets here and there. But then you can come up and say, well, it also mentions Bacalan. And A Song of Ice and Fire also mentions Bacalan. So Twice. why are you not placing A Song of Ice and Fire within... Uh, the thousand words, the the, the thousand words, and uh, that's my answer. Really, uh, we uh, we don't have a rule, right? It's what the reader feels like. And since this story is so sci-fi, and a song of ice and fire is so uh, high fantasy, it's very hard for us to put them together. I mean, we could do that if you wanted. I mean, it's not a crime to do that. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, some people have done that, but Quite. it's not likely, right? Yeah, and I was just talking to Frank about like, so for, um, once again, I don't necessarily know how to describe it, but uh, Martin has a very interesting relationship with what generally we would call fourth wall breaking. And uh, once again, like uh, I believe Arya, and once, sorry to talk about Song of Ice and Fire so much, but that's like the main thing at the top of my head, the main thing that I retained. I believe Dying of the Light does it as well, but I'm not sure. But I know, like uh, like you said, like Song of Ice Fire mentions the Bill Child of Bacalon, uh, like Arya mentions it when she's in Bravos, Tyrion mentions it, and in Fire and Blood, I believe is mentioned by... I think uh, there is one more mention, mention, which is in the Forsaken chapter uh, from the Winds of Winter, right? The the one chapter oh. in the point of view of Aaron Greyjoy. So... Oh, yes, he, he mentions uh, like it's being impaled on the Iron Throne or something? No, I it's... Uh, I think it, it's the part in which Euron, uh, well, do you mind spoilers about this chapter? Because I know it's uh, officially released, but the book's oh, not. No, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Okay, so the thing is, Aaron has been kidnapped by, by Euron, right? By his brother. And then he's thrown in a... In, in, in a I, I don't really remember because it's been a long time since I read this chapter where it happens, but I think he's on a ship. And then there are a lot of... of priests from different religions that Euron has also kidnapped. One of them is Piet Pri, uh, who we, we have seen in the House of Black and White in, in yes. um, A Clash of Kings. And one of them is a, is a, a source... I, I mean, he's a, a priest of Bacalon, too. Okay. Oh. That's where yeah. he, we have another Bacalon reference in The Song of Ice and Fire. I believe in the, that, like it was like uh, said to be a Lyseni god in Fire and uh, Blood, the prequel Targaryen book. Yeah, I don't sure. remember that 
uh, because I have read uh, Fire and Bloody only once, and it's been okay, a yeah, while. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I believe uh, when uh, the wife of Viserys, Rogar, like one of the um, mm-hmm. one of the wives, worships the child of Bacalon, she's Lysani. So that's oh. like. Uh, but then again, so once again, this all configures into Martin being notoriously uh, not messy, but like he, he has this. So once again, what I think, and I could be wrong about this, but there seems to be this uh, like subtle, non-definitive hierarchy of ideas that he employs about like, you know, like a god can switch uh, pantheons. It's fine. That's not really the important thing. Like the themes and the messaging are more important to Martin, I think. Yeah, I agree. Okay, <laughs> good. I'll take that as a segue uh, <laughs> to not not to to counteract anything you've both been saying. I, I agree, and I love that point about how the expanded universe is constructed by the readers and not by the text themselves, because I think that connects a lot with the sense of like we interpret genre not for, via our reading and not necessarily by a, a positioning or an arguing or just because oh this is. And breaks apart the idea of like a, an essence of a particularly a particular genre, that be it fantasy, that be it science fiction, that being attributed after the text during that reading. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm just agreeing with that. <laughs> Don't want to get too bogged down on that point because that comes up always when I'm thinking about these these points. But in regards to this theme, to to very briefly summarize the story and the. There can be uh, plenty of spoilers, as have been for Game of yeah. Thrones already, <laughs> or for Song of Ice and Fire. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my fellow scholarly friends, but also for because it will show up as a point of comparison. And so we're thinking about it for Ursula K. Le Guin's World for World is Forest, which has some fun points of similarity, and I want to drive into those later. But and Seven Times Never Kill Man is a, it is a story about effectively two different peoples. One is this, as mentioned, as Leon has been mentioning, a sort of religious fundamentalist zealots, military zealots, uh, the Steel Angels, and they worship the pale child of Bacalon as this warlike god that legitimizes them as like the true seeds of Earth, and they are the only humans as such, and so they they. They are legitimate in, in expanding and conquering these animals as they see in the Genshi, which are the native native peoples of the planet which the story is. It, it exists on. Corlos, right? Sorry? The planet's called Corlos, right? Or... Yes, it's Corlos. Okay, yeah, oh, thank you. Thank you, Bao. Yeah, no worries. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in, in the planet of Corlos, the, the Genshi, who are these very pacifistic, very... In touch with the environment, they're fairly somewhat. They're described in an animalistic sense, as they have a great deal of fur, but they behave in the human sense. Like they communicate, they talk, they trade, they they worship. So they're very familiar in that regard, and they are being conquered or destroyed by the Steel Angels. And the entire story, we follow this character of Necrol, or Necrol. I I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But he, he is an outsider who has landed in this world and he's, he, he's uh, effectively he finds artifacts uh, and relics and trades with other worlds. And he is impressed by the Genshi's cultural productions, like their, their artistry, their craft, their sculptures. And he wants to trade it all over the galaxy. And we can, we can talk about what, 
how that happens or doesn't. And we follow this story via an outsider who's witnessing this this event and is trying to to help and is trying to to provide a sort of motivation or support for the Genshi because they are facing annihilation mostly since the Steel Angels are far technologically advanced. They have like laser weapons and the Genshi don't don't even have any equivalent to gunpowder. So it's going to be a massacre, but it isn't, and not on account of Necrol's actions. The Genshi themselves are able to find or devise or influence a sort of solution. And the the Steel Angels, we we see them at the end sort of being doomed by a weird kind of exacerbated belief and, and faith to, to the point of their own annihilation via their, their faith and their their zealous uh, action. And it, it is it is an interesting story. It brings up the familiar things about colonialism, about expansion, about these this native sort of resistance and ideas, but in a way that if, as the counterpoint, I'll start with this and I'll, I can stop, uh, <laughs> but with World for World is Forest, if we have this, this world being conquered and what resistance will mean for the, the people involved, then in this case, it's that resistance happens in a very different sense and in a way which is very unfamiliar to, to us, I suppose. But we'll 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 get to that. This the, so this is the story of and seven times never kill man. It's expansion and conquest and colonial conquest, really. But it doesn't quite work out. Yeah, no, that's that's like a recurring theme, I believe. In uh, once again, a recurring theme in his in Martin's works that that war uh, people who wage war is are punished, essentially. Uh, there's like you know they might accomplish their initiatory primary goals of winning the war, but this is never a good thing. I think. Yeah, that's uh, that's even uh, very recurrent in uh, his older science fiction. Right, we have um, there is one short story by Martin. It's the first story that he officially professionally published in 1971. It's a short story called The Hero. And, and the hero is a story about a war hero. I mean, a guy who wants to... He, he now wants to rest. I mean, he, he was in the the earthen army and he killed lots of guys and he conquered lots of, lots of, uh, lots of planets. And now he wants to rest. He wants to, to give up his military career. And we, we see during the text that he, nev- he wasn't born on Earth. But he wants to spend his last days on Earth, retired. And then he has an argument with a general who doesn't want to send him back to Earth. First, the guy doesn't want him to retire because he's seen as a second-rate uh, soldier, even though he's a hero, right? He's not an Earthen. He he has been colonized before. so And... Uh, uh, his name is Cajun, by the way, just so it gets easier for me to talk about him. And then Cajun doesn't want any any compromise, and he really wants to go to Earth. Old Earth, as they call it. And and we know that Earth is a forbidden place for people uh, who, who are not from there. But eventually, Cajun... Uh, the, the general agrees and sends him back to Earth, even though the same general 
plots to to uh, destroy the the ship in which Cajun is coming back. It's a very simple story. It's very critical to to war in a very general sense. It's not very well written to, but it's it's emblematic because and and it comes together with and seven times never kill men in this particular sense, right? The the guy was a war hero. He spent his whole life as a top uh, military man. And it was not enough because the, the, the whole system attached to, to the logic of war would not let him be a human being in the end. So Cajun is, of course, he's very different from uh, what is Reverend, Reverend uh, I forgot his, his name. Uh, yeah, I mean the the bad guy in, in yeah. Seven Times. Yeah, <laughs> Reverend Withers, right? I think that's Wyatt. Wyatt. Okay. So, uh, of course, Cajun is very different uh, from Wyatt, even though the general is very much like Wyatt in many senses. They they are the representation of the war machine in this sense. Um, even though yeah. in this one, he is in the end. Uh, a victim of his own behavior, right? Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think that's very interesting. And it's like, I think that I'm always very frustrated about when I like encounter people who have just read Song of Ice and Fire and are like rooting for a certain war to happen or like are rooting for like a certain character to win the war. I'm like, well, you're not very familiar with <laughs> you know, his, his ideas, right? Like, you know, the guy's like a professional hippie, right? Like, he, he's not, you've not been paying attention if you think that war is a good thing. Like everyone yeah. who goes to war ends tra- tragically. Like, why? How have you not gotten this yet? So yeah, it's um. Yeah, I, I was not thinking in uh, about going into the the TV adaptation of A Song of Ice and Fire because oh, okay. uh, I think everyone's talking about it. Well, not yeah. now, but everyone was talking <laughs> about it back then. Uh, but I think this is a very important point you 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 just you just mentioned. Because uh, there is a comparison that I did once. Uh, it's it's in a fun text. Sorry, it's a, in a fan text in um in the website uh, that I work for, uh, a Brazilian website, uh, gelofogo.com, which means iceandfire.com. Mm-hmm. And and I wrote specifically about the difference between the vengeance on the phrase on the novels and and the TV show. Because uh, the phrase, for those of you who, who do not know A Song of Ice and Fire, they are a family, the, the family that betrayed uh, the... I'm being very general here. They're, they betrayed the Starks, who are something close to the protagonist of the story, and then there is a real bad event in, the, in yeah. which <laughs> the phrase are, are to blame, mostly. And as readers, we all hate them right? Mm-hmm. At least when yeah. we see these things happening, we all hate them. But the Freys are also known for being a huge family. Like, Lord Walder Frey has, I think, he, he has had eight wives by the point yeah. in which we start to read the narrative. The narrative. Uh, and then he has many sons and grandsons, and, and the list goes on, right? In that family. In the direct family, he's 74 people, I believe. Yeah, like, I think that's, yeah. Uh, that's around that. So as readers, it's very easy for us to hate on the phrase. And when they they do something horrible, then we are ready to see them all burn. Except that 
the 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 epilogue to a storm of swords is written from a Frey perspective and the guy's a douchebag he's yeah. not a very good person he's stupid but he's also a victim of his family yeah and in the end he is one of the starts comes back and and then she hangs him and i have never felt satisfied by that i mean no it's it's very yeah. sad what happens to to Mary free uh, yeah, and also how the star comes back. It's yeah. Once again, it, its messaging is not a clear retributive exactly. punishment or whatever. It's you know, it's it's all sad. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the TV show, the the, the revenge that we get on Freys are very epic. I mean, the soundtrack is epic. They cast one <laughs> of their the the audience's favorite characters, Arya Stark, to turn them into pie, in yeah. a reference uh, for a, a the book theory, King. right? But they they get. Arya to, to murder Freys and then say that this isn't the name of her family. And we never actually get to see how the Freys are feeling about this. And, and no, yeah. I mean, it's it's very complex, but the TV show, in my opinion, clearly glorifies revenge. Oh, yeah. And and yeah. Martin's whole works are aware of the, the dangers of revenge, right? Yeah, the saddest thing... and I. Sorry, you can't. I, I would love to, to do the whole episode about this, by the way, because it's it's very fascinating for me as well as like someone that studies social science and like how perceptions have shifted from like at, like the because uh, I believe at its core, some of us is more of a sociological story with heavy psychological elements in it, but it's mostly a cultural story. Whereas the the people were very generous and saying like, oh, it's shifted to psychological. I'm like, not really. For me, it's it it's sold out whole wholesale to cheap sensationalism and, yeah. and i'm very harsh here and i'm, I'm sorry but I, don't, I can't be as nuanced because that will take very long but um it, it's once again it's uh it reminds me of team sports in a way that people kind of rooted for danny or john or whatever and like that that's my team i'm gonna go to the stadium and, and like scream my lungs out in support of this character and like that's mm. <laughs> also like and even okay, even book fans are guilty of this up to a point, oh, namely course, with like yes. the whole romanticization of John and Danny. Which, if you people who believe in that, in the, in that storyline or in that that's going to happen, also believe that John is then related to spoilers, sorry, or not, it's not confirmed yet. Who knows? But the belief that John is related to Danny is like, oh, now incest is fine. All of a sudden, wild. Okay, cool. But that's then not even the main issue that I have with it. It's that they think that they are going to ride off into the sunset together on a unicorn and everything will be fine. And like, have you not been paying attention? I beg of you. I'm so sorry here to be mean-spirited, but it's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I do have a fun anecdote just to, to round this. Um, okay, yeah. But uh, I have a, a friend who writes uh, for Gelifogo as well. I think it was in 2000. 16 or 17 he wrote a real long text about why he believed Daenerys Targaryen to be uh the the hero in the prophecy which yeah it's called the Azura High right uh so he wrote a real long text and he has never been a fan of Daenerys he he <laughs> likes her story but he's not one of these people that you just mentioned who are just rooting for a character but then he wrote this text and it was back in the day when we were all criticizing how the show was dealing with Jon Snow, turning him into 
this uh, idealized hero and so on. So the critics of his text, people read his text, and then they accused him of being just a Daenerys fan, a Daenerys okay. apologist or whatever. And then the years passed, and the general perception of the public became that Daenerys was indeed ideal and perfect and whatever. Yeah. And he wrote a second text about, I don't even remember what it was about. I think it was about uh, Stannis Baratheon or something. But then, then he was accused of being a hater of Daenerys. And that was, <laughs> so you see, that's a, yeah. th- th- that's a problem with the audience. But the show, the TV show also promoted this perception, I think. Uh, and, and this is absolutely opposite to what Martin has been doing for like 50 years. Right? Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, I will never forgive them for... Uh, personally, it was... Okay, it's the last thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, the, the thing that I... Like, I've always been saying, like, season five was such a misstep for me. And the killing off of the Martells, which was my favorite. Uh, if I was... I was not rooting, like, people were rooting, but I was like, oh, I kind of like these guys. These guys seem okay-ish. Don't venerate them in any way, shape, or form, but uh, at least these are not the worst. So I guess if I have to pick for someone, they're okay. But the way they were killed off on like the show, and I was like, "Oh, this this is not going to be." They run out of source material, huh? And they like just very vehemently, like I don't know, wanted to abandon uh, everything, go for cheap sensationalism because the family needs to die now because that was the stakes after the the well that event that happens after at the end of season three, right. you know, or like at the end of season four, no three, no three, yeah, three, three, yeah. and so so yeah, anyway, that's so that's. So I was already saying like, "Hey, uh, this is going to be bad, guys," and it was like, "No, you, you're just you're just a book fan. You 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 just uh, you know you're just mean spirited." And I'm like, yeah, "Well, maybe, but I don't think this is good. It's going to lead anywhere." And and uh, it took up till season eight that people were like, oh, "You know what? Maybe you were right." I was like, "Yeah, no, now it's too late. I don't want to hear it. It's fine." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so uh, yeah, but yeah, no, I think so. Once again, did this anti-war sentiment in both. The world, the word for world is forest, and uh, the seven times never kill man is like very interesting because once again, Ursula Queen was a little bit more focused, and I think that's a general quality of Ursula Queen. I don't resent Martin for it, but I think Martin is a bit more. I don't know how necessarily how to say this, but like more generalist approach. You can he uh, he purposefully writes in a way, in my humble opinion, that I think. He leaves, uh, he leaves it open for interpretation, and he likes that. He likes that you interpretate his work in different ways. And whereas Ursula Le Guin is like, no, it's about this. It's, uh, you know, Frank, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong here or uh, whatever. <laughs> but No, no, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know in general or that much about Martin as a comparison point. You both can uh, speak of that better than I do. But like, I think that makes sense for Le Guin. Like, she, she leaves certain points open, but they're very specific. The specific endings, specific sequences, specific events, but others are. Whenever she's talking about them, they're a lot focused, and that's. Uh, I'll take the opportunity. That's my gripe with some of the scholarship about Le Guin is that like, oh, but she's not talking about this, and they don't consider the entire text. They consider that specific event as like, well, but if you take this whole book as a book, then you you find it more difficult to uphold the point you're talking about. So. I, I definitely think so. Like, whereas Martin, a lot of different points throughout the story that he's exploring, they are left 
a lot vaguer, a lot more open, whereas Le Guin chooses what she leaves open with a lot more clarity and a, a lot more contrast, I think, uh, which isn't positive or negative. It's it's a different way to do this writing. And in, in a sense, I think for me, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it, <laughs> it, it for Word for Word is Forest is easier for me to, to engage or to understand, even without any universe context. Uh, whereas and seven times never kill man i have i was left with the sense like i am missing something and that i lacked some other story or some other point and that may be the case or not but that sentiment is what i was left with even not understanding or understanding partially certain elements yeah i, I think that's interesting because uh, you're not missing any other story okay the story is <laughs> just like that really there's mm. no um there's nothing that would make you understand more the story than in, mm-hmm. in other Martin's texts than what you have probably gotten from from this one. But I, I really appreciate this this comparison that you both did actually because I agree with it. But I would go a little further to say that uh, you, you Frank just said that it's not good or bad. It's not better or worse. Uh, these different approaches. I think in this case, I mean, I'm a fan of Martin, but I think that Le Guin has more... She she, she knows better wh- where she wants to reach with this story in terms yeah. of a theory, in terms of, of anthropology in a general sense, because mm-hmm. I, I think we need to punctuate two differences between them. The first one is time frame. Yeah. Le Guin started to publish during the 1960s, right? Uh, she comes with a whole generation of North American science fiction authors who are engaged with turning science fiction into, uh, quotation marks, serious literature. Right? These guys, they are trying consciously trying to come closer to modernism uh, and I, we can mention here, Le Guin, Le Guin is even uh, the, the less experimental of them because uh, I could mention, uh, mention uh, Samuel Wardilani, uh, I could mention Roger Zelazny, or uh, Dix, uh, Philip K. Dix's presence in this group is very contradictory. I tend to put him in this, in this chunk of people, but um, I know it's more complex than that, okay? Uh, but let's just for a second consider him <laughs> in this group. Uh, Joanna Russ. So these people, they are making an effort of turning science fiction into not only acclaimed by the general public, but also acclaimed by critics. Uh, they Many of them are scholars. They start uh, science fiction studies, right? An academic, not they, not they specifically, but their generation, right? Le Guin wrote a lot for science fiction studies, for instance. Yeah. And and many scholars dealing with science fiction before, they were dealing with the, the hard sciences. They were dealing with the content of science fiction and the technologies and so on. These people, they wanted to analyze science fiction as a literature piece. So that's point one. Uh, whereas Martin starts publishing in the 1970s, and this was 
already more solid. Martin, Martin mentions that the, the big three of his science fiction uh, upbringing were Ursula K. Le Guin, Samuel Ward Delaney, and Roger Zelazny. So this was solid. And, and, and the other thing is that they're, they're raising... I mean, Le Guin was the daughter of an anthropologist and a writer. Uh, she had very humanistic education, if that word even exists. Sure it does. Yeah, you probably do, right? <laughs> so Le Guin is an intellectual writing science fiction. George R. R. Martin was worker class, right? He 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 eventually uh, went to college and so on, but his love for science fiction came from the time when he only had the money to buy the Pope, the Pope magazines, when he was a child. Mm-hmm. So George R. R. Martin loves adventure. He loves action. He, lo- he, he really enjoys these things that are, we tend to, to associate more with the golden age of science fiction, to, to the older authors than Le Guin, like uh, Isaac Asimov or Robert A. Heinlein and so on. Martin is a huge science fiction fan in this sense. So I think that Le Guin, in, if we are comparing these two texts, Le Guin is coming from a more intellectual place to write the word for word is forest and that's why she she, it's more well crafted i think it's more as you said it she knows where she what she is leaving open right whereas martin is a little bit in the middle between writing a classic sci-fi adventure like the ones he loved to read when he was a child or keeping up with uh, the new wave of science fiction, right? Or keeping up with these people who came 10 years before him. So I, I think this synthesis is a bit confusing at times, and I think it shows in In Seven Times Never Kill Men. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, no, I, what you articulated very perfectly, like, I think uh, if you look at his uh, sci-fi work, it's, it, I don't want to say it's all over the place, but it's indeed, it reminds me a lot of, like, you know, old school, like, like seventies adventures, like like maybe uh, the one that I uh, I'm a bit more familiar with because uh, not because we didn't have like I'm I'm, I'm not that old first of all <laughs> and seconds <laughs> uh, we we like the the things that I had access to were like little radio dramas of old sci-fi um, <clears throat> adventure stuff and this once again Martin's work like one for one reminds me and that's how I originally got in, into uh, introduced to his work uh, uh, I believe I got like a little rendition of um dying of the light then i was like oh that guy and then later on he became famous in game of thrones so ironically that was my first introduction to him oh and that i think so yeah that's that's definitely a thing that i always like for me he was always been that writer that also decided also did a fantasy dark fantasy mixed with high fantasy and yeah i find that very interesting that you know yes that that really odd background with uh but the, then the drawback of that is that I don't, other than war is bad, I don't think, or religious fundamentalism is also bad. I think he, and once again, it's very polite criticism, but he then kind of comes short in like a robust denunciation of the things that are bad about it. Other than, you know, war. It was, but when we have war, it's already, you know, it's that is obviously bad in my humble opinion. 
uh, there's less subtlety to it, I think. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I think I don't that know makes Frank sense. Has anything to say. Yeah. No. I, uh, something I was thinking about, and that really struck me about the story or the stories, really, is that Le Guin has a multitude of viewpoints. She has a character who's like this intermediate between the native peoples and the uh, the earthen colonizers. In that case, uh, she has a and she has a, a native character as one of the main protagonists and a big narrator and a character we follow most of the story. And I think that uh, Martin in this story he only ha- he has two different narrators, but they're both outsiders to the planet. And I think uh, that that is a good way for him to 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 do this story because I think if he tried to do that native representation, it would fail more or it wouldn't land as well. Whereas, yeah, it's a sort of compensation of of what he's doing, what he's trying to portray. But I think it does with what he's trying to do or the way he's doing it with with the level of sophistication and uh, craft that he has at this point. So the fact that they are only outsiders leaves certain gaps in ways that make it more difficult for that for that story, for that message, if you want to mention it as that too, to kind of land as well. And Le Guin, on the other hand, she has those tools and does it in a very direct sense. That's like, yeah, war is is terrible and sometimes you do need to literally fight back, but it has grave consequences. And we we only get the tip of the iceberg of what those are and the story ends. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, and Martin, we, we get via that position of the outsider, we don't know exactly what those consequences are for the Jainshi. In the long run, they kind of win because the, the Steel Angels at, at the end of the story, they're sort of poised to self-destruction. Uh, literally, they, they destroy their, their provisions in a heavy winter season and are executing their young. So it's uh, pretty hopeless, really. But we don't exactly get what those consequences have been or are for the Genshi. We, we get a, a greater distance and the effects of that war or the, that conflict, at the very least, are unclear. And, and I think that's one of the things, right? If, and in other works, I think, even the Song of Ice and Fire, those, those different effects of war and, and position in war and what that leads to become more sophisticated, they become more clear. Where, and even in the books, I think a lot, like there are points or scenes or moments that really counteract that idea of like, oh, I'm rooting for this one. Yeah, but they just did this terrible thing for absolutely no reason. You you really sure this is a good person? You really sure you want to root for them? And, and it's it's a lot of that. So I think it's it, yeah. I, I Le Guin is Le Guin. I'll, I'll I'll say that, and I I definitely resonate more and find her science fiction in, in what I've read so far a lot more interesting. And more for this forest is a great one, but I, I still found plenty interesting in this story especially as a point of comparison. It's like, oh, how interesting that he's doing this. And it is self-justified, I think, in a way that makes the story better because it it could have been worse. Yeah. Two things are very interesting about what you said, I think. And once again, I'm going to toss up this thing. No, let me say the other thing first because I can't. Okay. Well, once again, two things. Uh, the uh, I don't know. Once again, I think war is clearly bad for, for, once again, both of them. Uh, Martin has an interesting exception then for pacifism, 
we don't know what happens in the Jane Sheep, but I think within, well, once again, my understanding of Martin, it's like, it's not good either. Like, yeah, yeah. sure, we focus then on the Steel Angels and them, like, you know, them being harvesting the fruits of their labor, so so to speak, which are not good and and not good at all. And this is, this once again, this is a theme, but then also what happens to the pacifists is... Yes, they kind of get their way or they get some kind of comeuppance or attribution or whatever, but what happens to the pacifists themselves is not always good. And I would like to contrast real quick. I'm so sorry, Frank, because you haven't read the story. <laughs> but I would like to contrast this to Dying of the Light real quick. The Kindisi person that like doesn't do anything himself, but tries to instigate other people fighting. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Arthur. The, uh, yes. Ar- uh, no, it's Arkin. Arkin? Okay. Yeah, I think that's his name. Yeah, it's uh, Gwen's friend, right? Yeah, and uh, like it's this very much not heroic figure in contrast to the other... I'm so sorry, I forgot their names, but like like a lot of people think uh, one of those other people as like based off what Rhaegar Targaryen is based off of as well, like this heroic type it's of... John, John Vicari. Yeah, Jan, Jan something John, like something like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Once again, he's very heroic, very very masculine, and once again, that's also a theme within uh, Martin's works, his uh, struggle of um, himself as a lover, I believe, because he has a bunch of failed relationships, or which he's not bitter about, but he does write a lot about, so I, I don't know how to necessarily interpret that, but, but which is cool. You should write about, like, you know, stuff that you went through, that's fine. Um, but once again, this uh, this idea of I don't do general acts of violence and I remain passive, not pacifism, but our main passive is really interesting. And then in the hope that the other people destroy each other, which reminds me once again, kind of Dorn in Song of Ice and Fire as well. I don't partake in general war, but I do scheme and like in the hopes that that Lannister fights Tyrell and like, I don't know, stuff like that. And yeah, I, so this idea that we don't know what happened to the Jane Shi is, I, I would argue it's not good because they were attacked and they mostly died. Yeah. Um, so you know, there is that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to to go back to something that Frank said before. Uh, it, it's very close to what you just uh, said now, Leon. That we don't know what happened to Jane Chi and so on. And I think here we have one more huge difference between the two stories, which is the fact that Corlos is basically it's not an important planet in the ecosystem because uh, in, in 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 the the well just for context right uh, in the thousand words there was a war a double war because the Urtans were fighting two alien races at the same time when they were building them, their uh, empire so at some point no one knows what happened but the war ended and old earth is is a mystery no one knows what goes on what goes uh, in there and we had like 3,000 or 4,000 years of a deintegration of the colonies, right? They lost contact. Uh, no one, some of them developed autonomous societies. Some of them eventually started contacting each other. And, uh, and seven times never kill men is set after all this process. So you don't have, for instance, uh, a central power. Communication is all over. Right, it's uh, Arik Necrow wants to trade 
because he's a space trader. So that's the only reason why he goes to Curlus. Mm -hmm. This is a planet that no one really cares in, in a general sense. No one even knows what's going on in there. And, and those who know are doing nothing. Whereas in uh, Ashti, this is, it's, it's like as if it was set in the beginning of all this process that took place in A Thousand Words. So we are in the beginning of the, the fictional history of the Hainish cycle. And the Ecumen, it's not the Ecumen yet, right? It's, they are the... Yeah, I, don't, I think it's, it's the League of, of Worlds or something like that. The League like of that. Worlds, yes, thank you. So the League of Worlds is concerned about what happens in Ashti. So I think this idea of consequences has a lot... Ha, ha, it have a lot... This idea of consequence has a lot to do with how these planets are placed within their uh, expanded story worlds. It's not that in one of them we are seeing these repercussions and not in the other one, because that's not necessarily true. I don't remember seeing or, or uh, any mention of Ashti in other uh, Leguin's works, but it's the fact that people are concerned with this planet, mm. while they are not concerned with Carlos. Which leads me to another of your uh, considerations, and it has to do with point of view, right? And focalization. That This is something uh, that I've been thinking about a lot with the scope that I selected for my uh, doctoral dissertation. That's, uh, I am writing about precisely these stories, uh, and Seven Times Never Kill Man, The Hero, and so on. Right? There are seven in total, including uh, Dying of the Light. And you said that you feel that it was a good choice for Martin to stick with outsiders. And I get what you mean. Uh, and let's not forget that one of the outsiders, meaning Eric Necro, represents Martin's, not necessarily the person, but he represents the values that this generation and this particular group of authors and intellectuals in the 1970s were trying to 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 portray generally mm -hmm. speaking like war is bad uh, let's get out of vietnam and so on right so the, this is the basic the basic uh, premise so martin is creating a duo a duo logic between auric and his opposite wyatt mhm mm so someone is out of this uh, this polarization here, and these are the Genshi, right? We have very, very short uh, Genshi focalizations, uh, like sentences, paragraphs, here and there in the story. Mm -hmm. I think by the very end, uh, we have a little... But mostly, the center of the narrative becomes Eric, and he becomes our moral compass. Yeah. Right, because it's very easy to distinguish. Like this guy is good and that guy is bad. When we go to the world for this forest, Leguin does at least two things very differently. The first one is starting with uh, Davidson. Mm -hmm. Right here, we start with Arik Necro. There we start. So we start with our moral compass. There we start with a process of estrangement. Like, yeah, what the true. fuck am I reading? Who is this guy? 
<laughs> Why is he so awful? And then we have his counterpart, who is not Raj, it's Selver. Yeah. And then Raj becomes the mediator. He's a very problematic mediator. He's, I mean, we have we, we might talk about uh, it's Raj Liubov, right? Yeah. Okay. We we might talk about Liubov for hours and hours, trying to to <laughs> figure him out and and uh, judge uh, his positions. But he's a mediation that is clearly not enough. Right, because the opposite to the bad guy to the bad guy is Selver. Even though Selver also has problems in his, uh, I mean, we we can discuss Selver as well. He's not perfect. Oh yeah, but he is the 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 opposite pole, right? Yeah. Uh, so this is why I think uh, Le Guin is more sophisticated when she's trying to deal with one population and the other. Martin always sticks to the world we know. Mm. It's always the character uh, that represents some sort of values uh, and he wants to defend other people. He wants to... He, he's not the direct victim. That's mm. also the case uh, with Dirk Tillerian in Dying of the Light. He's a very ponderate guy, but he's a human. And he's caught between the, the this very warlike people the the cavalar and the yeah. kindis right and that this is a pattern this is something that I, this is my hypothesis for now <laughs> is that martin's focalization in characters that are men mostly who represent some sort of western view of uh not not the western view in general but the western progressive views mm-hmm. it makes him a bit more a little less bold and a little less sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we see this character like Eric Necro, who starts the way he ends. He does not change during the yeah. story. And sometimes Martin guides us through a, a learning process. And that's what happens with Dirk, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's always this pattern. It's always... We are always close to this particular point of view, which is Martin's point of view yeah. at the end of the day. So this is a little bit of my reading of uh, this uh, different focalizations here. I-, I think I talked for too long about this. But this really gets me excited. No, thank you. <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, I think but like another quality of Martin then is uh, his layering of story is really impressive, I think. Uh, Ursula Gwyn, once again, to like, draw them together and I'm I still want to mention one thing, and well, never mind. So, first off, what I think they both share is that they both layer their stories quite impressively, both having a psychological and a sociological element in them. And mm-hmm. uh, so, the thing that you mentioned with, like, once again, I'm sorry, Frank, but in Dying of the Light, <laughs> like, he, you have this um, sociological story being told between the groups of people and the lessons that Dirk learns. At the same time, Dirk still participates sort of kind of in this love triangle which is then also makes uh people uh, like who are more interested in that uh, this makes the story accessible to them and maybe they will learn something as well so the people who are like interesting in this in this love drama uh i don't think necessarily george r martin is the first thing on those people's minds but maybe i'm wrong i don't know but uh people who are drawn to that like there's so many love triangles in all his works and once again this reflects his probably his personal relationship with a bunch of other people 
Uh, I believe there's another writer. I forgot her name, but he, he had like crush on her and she left him for someone else. I believe I forgot, uh, forgot the, the name of the writer. I'm sorry. It's uh, Lisa Tetto. Yes, yes. Although, uh, just, a, just a side comment here. Dying of the Light is dedicated to a woman named Rachel who once loved me. That's the, the dedication in, in, the, in Dying of the Light. But Lisa Tetto happened in between this Rachel, who we don't know who is, uh, and then the publication of Dying of the Light. So it's, uh, yeah, so, so it's a very messy timeline there. <laughs> yeah, but they have multiple times that he like you know like non-requited love is like a bunch of uh, like a strong theme. So like the layering in both Ursula Guin and Martin's stories, I think, is very good. So like so we said that uh, uh, Ursula Guin is has this more slight sophisticated way of looking at things. I don't know if that's the right word, but like Frank, you said like the academic background like helps, and I think there is one very specific case in which this backfires, uh, ironically in Martin's favor. Um, feel free to cut this out, Frank, if you don't think it fits in there, because <laughs> it's a topic I don't necessarily like talking about. But it's in the way that both writers deal with sexual assault. And I don't really like talking about this kind of thing, but I think, once again, Le Guin has a too... How to say this politely? She's not at all... I'm not, not claiming at all that she is uh, condoning of this in any shape, way, shape, or form. But the way she contrasted in The Dispossessed, and once again, feel, frank, feel free to correct me, Frank, <laughs> Is it's too it's it's almost too social it's too sociological I would feel, and Martin has a more rudimentary view of it as in um, sexual assault is a characteristic of people who like are bad like you do this you're bad done, and even though this is too rudimentary sometimes for me I would like some sociological uh, element to it I I don't think it's a thing that can be defeated by saying change of culture I think that is too I don't want to call it blasé but like you're rushing over a couple of things here, I think. And I think that Ursula Le Guin is a little bit guilty of that. And I think, ironically, then I would prefer Martin's view on it. Like, it's, you know... I find, I find this very interesting that, yes, I agree full wholeheartedly that uh, Ursula Le Guin has this more, you know, broader view. I don't know, once again, if that's the right word for it. But that, that ironically, can also backfire. So I'm just... I'm trying to very purposely not do team sports here. That's that's my whole thing. That's my whole contribution to this episode. Like, don't don't root for one of them. That's that's all I'm saying here. So yeah, that's. You remember, uh, Frank, that when we read uh, the Dispossessed, uh, just for context, uh, I taught a course on the Queen's Heinz uh, uh, Psycho, and then Frank was there, and in one of the classes we discussed uh, the Dispossessed, this amazing novel by by uh, Le Guin. And then we reached a point in our debate uh, because there is uh, a sexual assault in The Dispossessed. And I try to thematize that with the students and ask, I mean, how do you make sense of this in the story? What is the purpose? How do you read it? How do you feel about it? And it was a moment in which no one really knew how to react, right? I, I, do yeah. you remember this, uh, this moment? Yeah, I felt the same way when I read it the first time. Yeah. I mean, we finished the novel and trying to think to to integrate it within the novel was very hard because it's just there and and, and we can try and make sense of it and think of what's his name? Shavak. Yeah. Of how Shavak is changing when he is in this other planet, in this other cultures and so on. We, we can try and do that, but it's very hard to, to find a satisfying interpretation, right? 
No, absolutely. I, uh, I'm trying to find a, a particular text which I use as a, as a reference point to talk about that because, I mean, I think Leon is absolutely right about that, that it's, how do you think about that? Because that, it's a really horrible scene. It's, what the hell? And, and it never gets brought <laughs> up again in, in the rest of the book. Yeah. And it's like, how do you, I mean, it's how I was to frame it. How do we integrate that in the book and in the character, worst of all? And we really don't, or we can't. And that tension is definitely something to, to think about. And like, how, how do you deal with that? And unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, uh, most dispossessed scholarship has not talked about that or has uh, passed over that scene without much comment. And there's one text. Uh, there are a few more texts recently that talk about this or go into it. But there is one, which is my uh, my touchstone for talking about that, which is uh, Shangin's uh, sexual violence in Laguin's the, Laguin's the Dispossessed toward an interpretation uh, from 2015. And I, I'll put the link in the show notes as well, which is definitely, it's a book that's like, the text effectively talks about like, yeah, you how do you engage with that? You need to accept this as a moment of uh, dystopian horror within this novel. And you can't run away from this as a reader, as a critic. And it is, we can definitely read it. And I think there's an argument for it to like, there is a lack of integration with the rest of the novel and that it is a flaw on Le Guin's part on talking about this and a flaw on a great deal of scholarship afterwards. And eventually it, it kind of falls on us to like go into it and like, yeah, no, this however it may seem to read, however it may seem to connect or disconnect, we cannot take this lightly. And we need to like take this as crucial and run with it. And this, in a sense, very simplistically, is what this text is doing. I love it to death. It's so good. So I can't, I can't recommend it enough. But in general, I think, I, I, I reassert what I think you're right, Leon, that Le Guin, when talking about this, at least... Let me think about it. It, it. It's most notable in Dispossessed. I don't think it shows up very much in Rokonon's World, the Planet of Exiles and City of Illusions, which I also read and wrote about. And I don't remember... Well, there's, we can talk about sexual violence in, uh, in a different sense in The Left Hand of Darkness. But in terms of sexual assault, the Dispossessed is more notable and Martin generally... <laughs> frames it in a very clear and it's like yeah that this is dystopian horror and like you can't walk away from this you can't turn away from this and you can't leave it aside easily so i think that in Le Guin is more difficult to, to narrow because it given how stark the moment is and, and that whole sequence afterwards it's like you, you you're left stunned you're left without difficulty to talk about it to integrate it as Arthur was saying, and that was there's very much a great example of like we we kind of can't. I yeah, uh, I'll 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 leave it at that because I I could talk about this for hours <laughs> because as you know it it, it kind of because it leaves the argument unfortunately for other researchers and they've done that to sort of pl- fly over the scene and like oh this was and and Delaney is a little at fault of this, unfortunately, in, in his text to read The Dispossessed. 
he he goes over this moment quite quickly. It's like, oh, this. He talks a bit about the inconsistency of the scene and, and the integration, how it may not integrate for other reasons as well. And I think he has a good point, but he doesn't go into like, okay, but if not, then how do you deal this as sexual assault, as sexual violence, clearly, um, and not just an inconsistency of the text or whatnot. But other other articles, other texts don't don't go into it and leave it aside as like, oh, she's just enticing him to to this or that or oh, it, it's not it's not sexual assault where it is so unfortunately that's the thing right like certain things in, in literature i guess i don't know i don't know why i'm going about this i i feel <laughs> about this very strongly i suppose uh, no, but certain things really don't need that much ambiguity in, in one sense i suppose that like can't open that particular door for this to be ignored uh, because this scene has been ignored uh, for a great deal of time in the dispossessed, even f- f- despite all its impact, and in Martin, I think in the texts, in thinking about a song of ice and fire, you you can't really let it go. I think that is terrifying and dreadful and horrible, and it is nothing but that. And it, it, it's difficult to to forget or walk away from that as like something. It's like, oh no, it was this, was that? No, this this thing. It is only this. Yeah, Martin has a very controversial text. It's not one of my favorites, but it's a short story called Meat House Men. I think this one provides a little bit more of a, a sociological or a psychological, I don't know, reflection on, on sexual violence. And I don't think he does very well in this arena. Hmm. But it, it, it is a story set in a in a sub-universe, in, in a sub-story <laughs> word of the Thousand Words, which is uh, the Corpse Handler stories. Just for context, uh, Martin said that the Corpse Handler stories are not Thousand Words, but he probably forgot that one of these three texts called Nobody Leaves New Pittsburgh, published only once in a sci-fi magazine in the 70s, mentions like Odorf and Ziffer and uh, many planets from the thousand words. So, I mean, this is one more of the inconsistencies that I pointed uh, in this paper I mentioned before. And that's why I decide that they are part of my thousand words. Parenthesis uh, closed. Mithal's man is set in a planet uh, in which uh, some people, the, the corpse handlers, they have a device that allows them to control corpses. And then many planets uh, use corpses in their economical activities. So, for instance, uh, in a story called Override, uh, the corpses, they mine, uh, they they, they work in mines. And so you have one guy controlling, like, five corpses, so they they will do labor. And then in Midhouse Men, the corpses are used in brothels. And we have this sexually frustrated guy, Traeger, who is one of the people who controls the corpses. So it's a very disturbing story. It's gross. But it also reflects a lot on this this in this aspect that I think I agree with uh, Leon and Frank. It's more rudimentary in A Song of Ice and Fire. And 
in a sense, I agree that I think he does it better to to show it uh, in a song of ice and fire to make it more more black and white, right? To 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 more this is bad, so don't do this. But on the other hand, I think that the role that sexual assault plays in the song of ice and fire is a bit problematic too, because oh, oh yeah, yeah. Thank you for being mm-hmm. <laughs> so so. Because well, for that, there's one huge uh, thing that only women are raped in Westeros, mostly, yeah. or uh, in contexts of of uh, gay men in, in in very particular contexts. But uh, some yeah, they're boy slaves, I believe. Once again, yeah, they're, like, they're yeah. mentioned. Yeah, but the characters that we see that go through this psychological uh, horror are all women. And we have a situation that can that I mean in in my reading it's obviously a sexual assault, that but it is never referred as such, which mm-hmm. is Jon Snow and Ygritte. Yeah. It, it, so it, when it's a girl, I well she's older than Jon, but uh, uh, she's in a position in which Jon is civilization and Ygritte is. Uh, the wildlands, as as she's called, right by the the Night's Watch. Then she's innocent. Uh, she doesn't mean to do that. That's how they connected and so on. So uh, I agree that I think Martin might have a more a, a less nuanced uh, take, and sometimes it helps. But also, I think that if he had he had put more thought on it. We could have better stories, and and I love mm-hmm. a song of ice and fire. They are my favorite books ever. <laughs> but they could have been better in many aspects, and I think that's one of them. That makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, no, another like another disturbing details is like once again, I mainly raise the point to like see that like, oh, just because Earth winds of this background is not necessarily always better, and there's like it, it's just it's it's a configuration of dynamics. That's all I'm like trying to argue for. Hmm. Another thing that, like, you know, in Song of Ice and Fire especially is, like, what I'm bothered by is indeed what you said. And I also think it's men who have committed acts of, uh, once again, of sexual violence I are still are still cool. Like, I hate to say it, like, are still protected, portrayed as cool people. Like, Euron, for example, is a fascinating character. But you cannot tell me that the man has never, like, you know, in one of those chapters, the pre-release chapters, he... Uh, once again, he's sacrificing his own childs with one of the people from the little islands in in the reach, which is probably going to summon krakens or something. I don't know. I don't. Not not important. But my point being that like it's he's still made to look like, even though he, it's said that he's bad and disturbed and whatnot, he's still made to be like some kind of enviable. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but. Yeah, he's not wholesale condemned in a more. I think he did a better job with that with the mountain. I think because mountain is a humiliated in battle to to uh, by Oberyn because Oberyn kind of wins easily. He doesn't at the end, but because it's Martin. Uh, but at the end, um, he 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 doesn't like his med- his physical prowess is tarnished in a more wholesale way. And like for some reason, once again, the show didn't pick up on that. But uh, God forbid. But yeah, so I don't know. It has a difficult relationship, indeed. Yeah, and another thing of that is that it, the people are still 
a lot of bunch of those people who do commit those acts are still are not brought down as much as I would like. So yeah, he has a more simplistic view, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That's what I'm arguing. But uh, yeah, it's very unfortunate. Still, don't get me wrong. That's yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think just to append that point on, on like Gwyn and like the nuance, like there are so many different elements and different aspects that she could choose as as dystopian horror as to counterpose a Shevek and his character, and it's like oh, some of the incomplete aspects of the the ideal uh, utopia and world, which isn't, but would be an ideal at the very least for Anars, which is the, the anarchist world. But she did chose this this extreme example of sexual assault in the way that it happens, and that that also leaves certain flaws with the ways that she doesn't deal with it. There are other things that maybe she could have. Uh, uh, portrayed in a sense it's like oh but what the hell what's going on why is he doing this um and that could maybe be passed over but it is it is of such impact and of such yeah there's no other way that it doesn't leave an impact that it 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 ends up being somewhat an unfortunate choice if fortunate there's a lot of ambiguity there and talking about it and i i can't stop Uh, so i will do so now but yeah it's there are problems eventually when when dealing with some some of those ambiguities in a way that doesn't spend too much time with them. I think that that it ends up being the flaw, right? It, it it ends up being so brief, so short that we're left with so many voids about that that it really it, it doesn't it doesn't go further. And you know maybe we to 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 drive the point home. It's like oh maybe the person who suffered this sexual assault. It, maybe it wasn't a big deal, really, given some of the other experiences. But isn't that just as terrible that she's been desensitized to this level of sexual assault, etc.? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's not that it's impossible to deal with it, with it in nuance, but it requires dedicated time to it. And if you want to be more black and white, then it's easier to go through it. And it's like, yeah, that's that's it. And even then, you know, the, the problems of the mentioning, it's. It has. There's always problems we're going to find, and plenty of those are justified, and it's worth talking about them, generally. Definitely. So, uh, we've been here for a little while. I think, generally speaking, we, we've gone on to some excellent points on what we're talking about, some of the differences and, and the specifics of mine, so I will sort of draw it off to a close. But uh, before that... Arthur, anything else you want to mention? Anything you think we, we didn't talk about yet? If you, or or any, anything else? Well, I, I just want to mention that it was a wonderful time I had. I mean, uh, as I, I told you before, I I am feeling a little sick today. So, And it was a very exhausting day so far because uh, <laughs> my girlfriend moved today. So she's got a new apartment. Oh, wow. And she lives in another town. So we had to go to her town by car and then grab all the stuff and then go with all the stuff upstairs. So it was an exhausting day. Oh my God. But it was a real pleasure to end this day uh, having this chat with you, talking about some stuff we all clearly love, uh, which is literature <laughs> and arts and narratives. And So it's been really a pleasure. Uh, I I have known Frank, uh, Frank for a while now, but... Um, it was also an immense pleasure uh, to meet Leon. So I would like thank to you, thank likewise. you. Thank you for your project and thank you for inviting me to, to take part in it today. 
Yeah, thank you, Arthur, for for coming in. And uh, I, I mean, I think this is a greater honor still that you you've you've managed to to come here today after helping your girlfriend move. That is yeah. insane. <laughs> we could have rescheduled, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was a, a very nice closure for me, for my day because, it, of course, what happened before was really good because I am really happy that she's of course she's been able to to move. But it was also exhausting, right? Yeah, always is. And, but it also makes me happy to to chill down a bit and uh, talk about stuff that I I really uh, enjoy too. So it was um, it was a really great time. Thank you, really. Like it's it's an even greater honor, and it's such a great discussion to have you on. Like it's it was everything I expected it to be and better. So thank yeah, you so much, Arthur. Indeed. Leon, yeah. any, any final points? Uh, no, like it's once again, uh, we know how to call if we ever want to do another George R. R. Martin uh, thing. I, oh, thanks. Yeah, no, definitely. Once again, I I, uh, I talked about doing Song of Fire, but then again, that's probably too much for one episode. So if you ever stumble upon another uh, sci-fi thing, then I would love to uh, do this again sometime. But um, don't feel Absolutely. obligated at all. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, there is a. I always tell my students that there is one story one uh, science fiction story by Martin that is inescapable because it's so good. It, it, it's simple too. We can find problems in there, but it's so good, uh, which is his novella, uh, A Song for Leo. Have you read oh, this one? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is about a couple. They are orphans and she's a telepath and he's an empath, which means that he can feel other people's feelings. And then they are assigned to a mission in a planet called Shikin World. In Shikin World, we have a human colony and we have this, this very, what, how can I put that? They, they are there since forever, the, the, the Shikin, right? There's a word for that, I just forgot it. Uh, and, and the Shikin, they all have a religion that involves being eaten by a giant worm at some point. <laughs> when they they ascend, so first they like put a a pocket worm in the ear, and they like feel connected. They they are like in an advanced stage of being, and then when they they reach a level of collectiveness, they go into a cave and get eaten by this giant worm, that connects them connects them, their consciousness all in one. They become a hive mind. And then this couple are assigned to find out why are humans converting to the Shkin religion. And th this is a brilliant story. So this is something I recommend to, to everyone. And I always love to talk about it. Uh, and I made an, an experiment this semester because I taught uh, North American literature at my university. And I taught a part of it, right, as, as my internship uh, requirements. And and I wished that I could go with a song for Leah, but <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> right before the course started, I switched for another George R. R. Martin short story, one that is more obscure, called For a Single Yesterday. Uh, do you know this one, uh, Leah? No, sorry. Oh, th this is about uh, a community, uh, a hippie community. Uh -huh. That survived oh, with, the, the with the guitar playing guy. Yes, like... yeah, I, okay, yeah. Sorry, yeah. The group loved this story. The, the The problem they have to solve is they have a musician 
who lost his girlfriend in, in a nuclear holocaust. And he found a drug <laughs> called chronine, which allows him to travel back in time and relieve moments from his former life. And he's addicted to chronine because he can go back and, and see his girlfriend. And then at some point, there's a, a, a military guy who comes into the village and he wants to to, to modernize things. He wants them to, to, to find resources so they can try to build a new society. And one of the resources he wants to use is the chronine because he figures that they can find out how to produce Otex or medicines. And there's the, the dilemma, right? Can we take this out of this artist who is in grief for the whole community? It's a beautiful story. So there it goes. I think that these are two very uh, interesting gateways into Martin science fiction. Definitely. And um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. The Worm is very interesting. And like, once again, it shows a little bit of his love for Dune as well, which I think uh, with yeah. the Old Earth is also a Dune thing. And the Imperial uh, Federal Empire that falls away and breaks away is also a Dune thing. So I think that's, uh, once again, the the high find and stuff is definitely something I would love to get into. Once again, uh, somewhere in the future, uh, Frank, if you're down with that as well, because it's such an interesting sci-fi concept. And I think George R. R. Martin is has a lot of hive minds. Like, yeah. Like, like a lot. Like, sure like does. A lot of hive minds. So <laughs> once again, yeah, that's probably, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll just top it off there. Uh, Frank, if yeah, you don't but- want to do uh, yeah, no, uh, just want to thank you again, Arthur. Like, this has been a wonderful episode and a, a great chance to have you on. We definitely should do this again. We'd be delighted to have you. Uh, this has been great. Definitely. And yeah, you know, people can... can do, you, do you want... I mean, th- these are this generally in English, although there are Brazilian listeners. I don't know who they are. Uh, <laughs> but is there anywhere or any place you'd like people to find you? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to give you my address, though, because don't no. find me where the kids are outside. Uh, well, so, uh, as I mentioned, I work in... Uh, I write for uh, gelufogo.com. It's the biggest uh, website dedicated to Martin's works. Uh, I also take part in their podcast called um, Canções de Gelufogo. And I also uh, produce a podcast uh, dedicated to Patrick Rothfuss's um, The Kingkiller Chronicle. Uh, the name of this podcast is Os Quatro Cantos, which means The Four Corners. Also, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my my Twitter ID is terrible to describe, but it's... <laughs> you G- put it in the description. Yeah, I will. I will. Okay. Uh, it, it's uh, a joke because uh, it, it comes from the times in... Uh, which uh, when I was uh, constantly defending the right of George R. R. Martin to not publish The Winds of Winter until it's done and okay. satisfyingly done. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's J uh, sorry it's uh, G R M did no wrong. <laughs> Although he did some wrong, I, I just yeah. want to <laughs> note that. <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter, and and there is an upcoming website for my research group here at uh, Universidade Federal do Rio Grande do Sul. Our research group reads G-E-N-I, Geni in Portuguese, which means um, 
study group, uh, no, narrative. I I'm translating that just now because I'm so used to, <laughs> to saying this in Portuguese. Yeah. But it's a research group for uh, narrative and intermediality. We have a website coming on with uh, many translations of uh, narratology texts and so on. So, but this is uh, for the future. Yeah, look, looking forward to it. And I'll, I'll put all the relevant links in, in the show notes and description. Thanks. And uh, I'll, I'll also tag you on Twitter when this is released. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Arthur. This has been great. And, uh, you know, people can, can find our podcast uh, wherever you find your podcast uh, and on Twitter at leftpagepod. And uh, if you could support us on Patreon, we, we have some bonus writing stuff there and some older uh, other content that I've made, some other stuff on writing when I was thinking about writing and actually writing fiction. Should should do more of that again at some point and more writing. But, you know, thesis work. <laughs> yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, you can find this stuff on patreon.com forward slash left page for both the left page and the other show Leon and I have been doing, which is Here Be Media on the other media, which is not literature or books because we're, <laughs> we're talking about nonfiction as well. But yeah, video games, TV shows, movies, uh, it's also on there and it's all on the feed. So yeah, thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Leon. Thank you, Arthur. And I will see everyone very soon. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, guys. Take care.